Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, led them up on a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. We know the story of the transfiguration. I think it's important, well, like the reading of most of Scripture, that we set things in context. What is it that leads up to this moment? What is it that Jesus is doing and why on the mountain? Why does he need to give his apostles this at this time? What comes before this, but what comes after? Where does this fit in the whole? Not a bad thing to go back and read the previous chapter in St. Matthew, chapter 16. You'll notice that it begins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming after Jesus and looking for a sign from heaven. Now we know that there have been signs of the kingdom, that there are things that have been displayed in his life. We've been observing that. He's been talking about the kingdom. They're looking for something more outstanding. And in some ways you might wonder, wouldn't the transfiguration satisfy them? But the transfiguration isn't for everybody. And he warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees about dependence on signs. He actually rails against this generation that demands the signs, that imagines that if they had the signs, they would believe, but signs can fool you, signs can pass away. What he says is no sign will be given to this generation, but the sign of Jonah. Intriguing sign to think about. On another occasion, he says specifically, that is, that as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. Well, so will the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth. On this occasion, he doesn't reference that part of Jonah. And I actually think the sign of Jonah is more than just this idea of the the death and resurrection that is depicted there. Think about that whole story. Well, if you don't know it well, go back and read it. For one thing, Jonah is called to an act of obedience, one that he can't comprehend, and he runs from. He's actually being sent to sworn enemies. The Ninevites are part of what formed ancient Babylon. They were enemies of Israel already, and they will be fierce enemies in days to come. But Jonah is sent to them with a a call to repentance. Well, a word about God's judgment We know that he flees from that. But the Lord does send him and sends him. And by this act of obedience, a nation is turned. He goes to his enemies and his enemies turn to the Lord. Out the other side, Jonah is pretty clear that he didn't have to do it. I mean, God could have done this anyway. And even Jonah railing at the end says something about the sign of Jonah. The world does not understand what God is doing. But in this act of obedience, following what God says, even when it doesn't make sense to Jonah, the way of salvation, the way of redemption, the way of healing is there for the nation to whom he goes. We have been talking more recently about signs of the kingdom, teaching about the kingdom, parables of the kingdom. And again and again, The Lord is showing us that what looks small in the sight of the world actually can produce great things for the kingdom. Things are not always what they appear 
to the world's eyes. And then as Jesus heads away with his disciples, he warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's one of those things that's worth having in mind, given that we've again heard recently of his parable of the woman putting the small measure of yeast of leaven in the dough and leavening the whole mass. That's godly leavening. That's the things of the kingdom that bring that fruitful growth. But now he reminds us that there's a leaven that also seeps into things, but is an insidious thing. It poisons. It affects everything in one's life. Don't pay attention to the Pharisees and the scribes because they're focused on the things of this world. They don't get the ways of the kingdom. And if you remember, it's kind of a funny little incident because he warns them that way and they're in the boat with him and they say, oh yeah, he's talking about that because we forgot the bread. That's why he's talking about yeast. And Guys, come on. <laughs> I'm not talking about this bread. I'm Remember, remember what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. How many loaves, how many baskets gathered up? The feeding of the 4,000, how many loaves, how many baskets? And there are stories we could look at more fully another time, but even on that occasion, he's saying, do you not, do you not understand what's going on here? You brought to God all that you had, but it was a small thing. It was inadequate for the, for the task at hand, but like that insignificant bit of yeast that goes into the dough and brings this great growth, It's the good yeast, but it's put in that good dough. Like the seed that's put into the good soil. Entrusted into the hands of God, these things grow into the goodness and the fullness. Thousands are fed by the the fruit that comes of that offering. It's all got to do then with the trustworthiness of the one with whom they're walking because immediately out the end of that, we find Jesus with his disciples apart in a place called Caesarea Philippi, a place that has a lot of pagan significance in all kinds of ways. But in that place, apart from the others, we're now at the point where Jesus actually wants them to see where these things are pointing. Who are people saying that I, the Son of Man, am? And they give him the litany of possibilities. But then, who do you say that I am? And we know Peter's response at that point, where Simon becomes Peter, really and truly, as he becomes that rock on which Christ will build. He's seen what all these things are pointing to, but note, he sees not with the eyes of the world, but those of the kingdom. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I've commented on this before. The blessedness is not that Simon is standing up above the others and got the right answer and Jesus is commending him. He's actually saying this is a gift to you. You didn't come to this by human reason, not by flesh and blood. This is a gift of God. Hold on to that. You see who I am. But now you've got it in the context of what you know of me. Now let me tell you that though I am the Messiah, though I am the Christ, though I am that Lord, the way that I have to go is that way of suffering and death. Resurrection will come, but only by way of the cross. 
Well, you know Peter's response. At that stage, Simon falls back into the, whoa, whoa. (laughs) We see now that you are the Messiah. Everything points there, but you're the Lord of glory. And that's not a glorious way. That's not a way of honor. That's not the way of majesty. And Peter rebukes him, but you recall the rather harsh rebuke that comes in turn, get behind me, Satan. What's the problem? Well, your mind is set on the things of man and not of God. You're actually imbibing that yeast of the Pharisees now. He explains to them the way that he is to go. But further says, if you're going to come after me, this is the way that you must go too. He's been setting them up for this understanding that he is the trustworthy one into whose hands these things can go. He is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. But the way that that's going to be lived out from here is that he will go down into the darkness. He's going to go down as the seed must go down into the ground, hidden in the earth to die, that it might spring up into life. I don't know where they all were at that point, like what they made of that. Peter feeling the sting of that rebuke. We're told a week later that he took three of them and went up the mountain. Peter, James, and John. One of the mysteries of the gospel, why those three at such times? In Simon Peter, we know is the one who needs certain things in his heart because later he will have to turn and Strengthen the others, guide them back to their Lord. John, perhaps because he's the one who sees and gets these things already, who also will be given at the end of the story this incredible glimpse of the fullness of God's glory that maybe only John could take in, in the Revelation. James? Well, we know that James is the first of the apostolic martyrs. Is this what he needed to know to be ready to open that way. We don't know for sure, but the three were taken with him. And as he went up on the mountain and they were praying together, the glory came. This overwhelming glory. I was reading St. Matthew's account and I thought, we maybe don't feel the overwhelming sense in that one. We're not hearing about them being on their faces as the icons tend to depict the scene. But it is a surpassing glory. The radiance is extreme at that time. He's glowing with this this radiant whiteness. And I think about his words when he prays in John 17. And he prays about for that glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And you think about the glory that was on the mountaintop with Moses, that he only got a bit of it. And yet it was so much that as he came down, his face was shining from being in the Lord's presence. I say you only got a bit of it. Because again, in the last couple of days, we've been reading in the offices of the setting out of things for worship in the wilderness. And the tabernacle is is constructed. And there within is the innermost sanctuary. And into that place is brought the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat set over it with the carved cherubim there where the Lord will come down in his glory. And he does come down. And when his glory comes down, Moses 
who has been up the mountain with the Lord has to flee because it's so overwhelming. Many years later, King Solomon will build the temple. And when the temple is ready to go and the Holy of Holies is opened up, that's that innermost sanctuary, the ark will be taken in. And the Lord's presence will come down to consecrate that place. And the priests have to run out because they cannot stand the glory that is so overwhelming. The glory that we hear comes down in the wilderness and there will be that association we speak of of the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, with that mercy seat where the glory of God comes down and brings the atonement, brings that that healing for us. But that area at that time comes first in the tabernacle, then within the temple to be closed off by the thick veil. And you might recall that on the day of the crucifixion, even before the resurrection, that as the Lord goes down into the depths, that the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And there's an opening up of glory on the mountaintop. It is as if that curtain were drawn back and the glory that Solomon saw come down upon the temple that Moses saw come down upon the tabernacle that was so overwhelming that even the priests and Moses himself had to flee, that glory is there in Jesus Christ. It's not the glory that was shining on the face of Moses. It's far greater than that. In Moses, it was a reflected glory. In Jesus, it is his very nature. At different times, gone back to things in Romans 12, where St. Paul will give the calling to his, his friends to respond to the things that God has done by giving themselves wholly to him. And he says, you're not to be conformed any longer to, to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The word for being conformed is suskematizo, where schema is the word for the kind of the outward appearance that changes as the years go by. And so you've heard me talk about this one before. Carolyn and I are marking our 35th wedding anniversary today. If you go and see the wedding pictures, there's this guy with a tight-trimmed beard and all this dark shade in, in it. How I appeared in that day 1988, and how I appear today, well, are quite different. The color, anyway. (laughs) Hopefully a little more wisdom in the countenance as well. But the other word that comes up of being transformed is metamorpho, the verb, and in the heart of that is morphe. And the morphe set against the schema is really the essential person, the part that doesn't change. My appearance has changed. I hope that I've grown through those years, but you know that it's the same person inside because that morphe continues. When we think about transfiguration, we often think about a a difference in the appearance, but in Christ it's far more than that. And frankly, if I were to say that, you know, here we have a couple of young mothers in our midst and One of the things that always strikes me about the pregnancy 
is that the mother comes to glow more and more with the radiance of the child within. And I might say that you know, Chloe, as she came along in that pregnancy, came to be kind of transfigured. She'd always been a joyful believer in the Lord, but, but something more, a, a deeper radiance. It's not just that she looked different, but that there's the light that shines forth. Christ transfigured. Well, the word for trans, to be transfigured, it's actually the same as the being transformed. It's that metamorpho is the verb that's there. He's shining forth with that glory that is within. They see that glory. Two other things are going on there. First is that Moses and Elijah are present. What has Jesus been showing them? He is the one who fulfills all the words that God has spoken, all of his promises, all the laws and commandments. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to destroy, to do away with the law and the prophets. Not to destroy, but to fulfill them. Moses and Elijah are there, speaking with them. All of these things are are being fulfilled in Jesus. But further there comes that voice of the Father, as the cloud overshadows, and we're not to miss that sense of the Lord's presence and that cloud of His glory coming down. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It echoes his baptism where that was revealed, but now that glory, the full attestation of the Father to who this is, but then the curtain is drawn again. The glory is closed off, but they've seen that glory, and it's something that they're to hold in their hearts and they're to know in the days that follow. The days that follow are really important because he's going down into Jerusalem. He's going down in the way of the cross. All of their senses are going to tell them that this is not the way of glory. This is not the way of the Messiah. This is not the way of victory. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon and scourged. He's going to be crucified. A darkness will come over all the world, but even though they don't feel it as clearly as they might, there is going to be in their hearts that conviction that the light shines in the dark. The darkness cannot overcome it, cannot comprehend it. That is, it can't even understand what's going on. The words at the cross, the challenge is, if you are the Son of God, if God really cares about you, let him... Come down from the cross. Show us that glory. But he goes down like that seed that goes down and into the soil, the good seed into the good soil, that goes down into the depths, outwardly looking hard and lifeless. There's nothing particularly exciting about the seed, but within is that light. Within is that life, and it goes down into the ground. And in this case, it goes down not into what we would have called good soil. It goes down into the absolute barrenness of hell, into the depths of the devil's domain, into the place that seems to be abandoned by God. But there breaks open and the roots go down deeper because even in the place of the deepest, darkest despair, God is deeper. 
If we could push on down through the depths of our despair, we would find that there is a foundation and it is in God. The devil does not rule in hell. It's his delusion. Hell has no foundation except the foundation of God. And hell itself will not stand, but God's foundation will. The roots go down into the deep promises of God. And the life springs up in the darkness. The the shoots break forth from the ground and life is manifest. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he shows them that all the law and the prophets pointed to that glorification, pointed to what's fulfilled in him. He will show them then some further glimpse of that glory, though the world will still have trouble beholding it. It is there for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. The treasure was hidden and he hides it now within our hearts and within our lives. He shows us his glory and we follow the transfiguration so that we're filled with hope for who he is and the promises in him. But more than that, it's not just that we see that that was his way But as he said, it's the way for all who would come after him. Some of you will know it more profoundly than others that in this world we go into dark places. There is that way of suffering and struggle and some of it we wish wouldn't come and some of it we have no choice about. But we go in that way of darkness and it's not to be the way without hope because we know that the light shines in darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. We know that following after Jesus, we must go the way that he goes. But we go down into the dark from that mountain, from his glory, with his glory. Because that's the way of the kingdom. Remember the treasure hidden in the field. The leaven that is hidden in the lump of dough, the that is of great price that we are to find and to know that it's that which we are to let go of all else to hold on to. And sometimes we go the way where all else is taken away. But the hope is there in the transfiguration that is glory, though it be veiled, though the clouds overshadow the sun, though we are walking in darkness, yet the light eternal continues to shine. St. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is our hope. This is our confidence in Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world. And the light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not.